I want to rush to extend my gratitude to the elders for extending such a gracious invitation for allowing me to preach the word of God to you this morning. Please meet me in the book of Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And this morning we are going to be looking at, we're going to be studying verses 1 to 16. And as you find your place in the text, let me make some introductory remarks. In 1961, A.W. Tozer wrote a little book titled, The Knowledge of the Holy. And in this book, he penned the following cogent yet terrifying words. The current conception of God is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High. And actually to constitute for professed believers something to the degree of a moral calamity. He then goes on to say, any deviation from that insight from him revealed in the pages of scripture is a made of God, a God of our own imagination, an idol. In other words, any deviation from the God revealed in the pages of scriptures is a counterfeit. Any departure from the God of the Bible is a creation. And you and I as sinful people will always feel the impulse to create an over-idealized version of ourselves that we can call God. A God that we can be comfortable with. A God that we can manipulate or course correct if he misbehaves. And you may be thinking that this is a far-fetched idea. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the current paradigm of the modern church. If I were to survey the evangelical landscape and, and go to churches and ask churches, uh, when was the last time, I don't know, that, that your congregation went through an in-depth study of the attributes of God? The overwhelming majority will respond to this question in the negative. J.I. Packer was correct when he said that the church in North America is 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. Why? Because in the final analysis, we do not know God the way we ought to. And how can we claim to love a God that we don't know? Let me ask you a question. Have you studied God in all his revealed fullness? You see, and studying God is not for the academic. Studying God is not for 
the wannabe theologian in the room. Studying God is God's expectation for all. Jeremiah 9.24 tells us, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me and that he knows me. I mean, that is amazing that, that the God of the universe, that the creator of the ends of the earth is expecting each one of us to know him and to understand him, to study him, to comprehend him. And some of you will say, but, but Reuben, uh, God is incomprehensible. Yes, God is incomprehensible. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, all the depths of what? The riches and wisdom and, and knowledge of God. How, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord and, and who has become his counselor or who has given him a gift that he may be repaid. We know that God is otherworldly. We know that God is transcendent. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that although the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us. That God in his condescension has revealed what he wants us to know about himself in the pages of scriptures. And he is commanding all of us and he is expecting all of us to know those things, to study those things, to understand those things. How do we know that our understanding of God is biblical? Sometimes I hear Christians' knee-jerk reactions when they're confronted by certain things in the scriptures they find quite troublesome. And they say things like, my God will never do something like that. Or my God will never think that way. Or my God will never make decisions like that. Or my God will never allow that to happen. And I always tell them, you're right. Your God will never do none of those things because your God does not exist. Does your God ever confront you? Does your God ever rebuke you? Does your God ever admonish you? Does your God ever challenge your categories? Does your God reprimand you when you are wrong? And the reason why some things in the scriptures upset us is because they contradict the God that we have created in our minds. And a defective view of God will lead to a defective view of self. How do we know that the God we believe in is the, the God of the Bible? And, they, and there are certain things and there are many things in scriptures the Bible does not care to defend. You know, they're just stated. And God does not spend one millisecond of his time defending them nor apologizing for them. He is commanding us to submit to those things. He is commanding us to surrender to those things. What do we do when we are confronted by things in scriptures that we disagree with? And just so that we are clear, 
in a battle between our opinions, our ideas, and what the Bible says, there's always one winner. And it's not us. Right? God is always right. And we are always wrong. And it is our duty, our moral obligation to conform to what God says. Even if we don't like it, because God is not asking us. We must submit to what he says. And in this passage, that is exactly what Jesus is doing with Peter. He is correcting Peter's understanding of God, Peter's understanding of salvation, Peter's understanding of the kingdom of God. And, and, the, and the question that Matthew has weaved into this story is the following. What do we do when the Bible corrects our view of God? And there is nothing more controversial in Christian circles than the topic and the subject of the sovereignty of God. Particularly as it pertains to his sovereignty in salvation, in his distribution of his grace. On God's right to do whatever he wants to do with his creatures. On God's freedom absolute freedom to do what he wants with his grace. And two of his attributes are heightened by Matthew in this story. His justice and his sovereign grace. And Jesus is about to pit us against the corner. And he's about to mess with our contemporary sensibilities regarding what we call fairness. And the one thing that Jesus wants us to know this morning is that God is an unfair God. And perhaps some of you are beginning to feel quite uncomfortable with this. And that's a good thing. Let me say something about preaching. Preaching is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. That is the only way we will grow. So if you feel uncomfortable, that is good. That is the, the, the work of the Spirit in your heart. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait till the end. Because two things will happen. You would either leave this gathering, lifting your fist toward heaven, and telling God, how dare you? Or, or you will be humbled by the mere fact you are even alive in this place. But you will not leave indifferent. The title for my sermon is The Unfair God. Are we ready? Let's get to work. Four. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And, and going about the third hour, he saw others standing idol in the marketplace and to them he said you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right I'll give to you so they went going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and he said to them why do you stand here idle all day they said to him because no one And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to this foreman, to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed? Don't I have the right to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first, last. It's interesting because Jesus begins this parable with the word for. And he does so because this story, this parable, continues an argument that Jesus begins in chapter 19. After his interaction with the rich young ruler. Once the rich young ruler leaves the scene, the disciples approach him and ask him a very important question. And this is the question that Jesus is trying to flesh out through the remainder of chapter 19 and through the first 16 verses of chapter 20. And this is important, brothers and sisters, because if you ignore the question, you will misinterpret the parable. Peter comes to him and asks him, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies in verse 26, with men this is impossible. What is this? Salvation. But with God, all things are possible. You see, Jesus is leveling the field. What is true for the rich is also true for the poor. What, what is true for the powerful is also true for the weak. What is true for the intellectual is also true for the simple. No one can do this on their own. You cannot earn it. You cannot attain it. You cannot gain it with riches or with good deeds. No one is able to do this on their own, but there is a theological underpinning in this statement. And, and we cannot act as if it were not in the text. And we cannot ignore it, we cannot treat it lightly, we cannot circumvent it. We have to face it because it is written. What does he meaning by with men this is impossible? It means that men on his own, is utterly incapable to come to God and be saved. Because in our natural state, we are spiritually dead. Sin has corrupted, infected our wills, our desires, our minds, our dispositions, to the degree that we do not seek God, Romans chapter 3. We do not comprehend God, Romans chapter 3. We do not submit to God, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. We do not accept the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. We are unable to submit to him, Romans chapter 8. And we are unable to come to him based on Jesus' words in John chapter 6. For men, this is impossible. Dead men do not want to come to God, won't come to God, and they are unable to come to God. For men, this is an impossibility. And it's not that God made a way 
through Jesus Christ to make salvation a mere potentiality. Dead men couldn't care less about a potential salvation. It means that salvation is only possible by God, through God, and for God. That he is the greatest overcomer. Salvation is an impossibility in theory, but also in practice. And that is why God must be the causal agent. It is God who needs to overcome our resistance. It is God who needs to overcome our deadness. It is God who grants the repentance. It is God who grants the coming. It is God who grants the faith. You see, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 does not say, Hey, fellas, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God made salvation possible. Now you come and get it. A second hesitation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By, save you have been, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift from God so that no one may boast. God is the greatest overcomer. Salvation is impossible for men, but with God all things are possible. Did you get that, Peter? And you know, Peter will always Peter. And he was like, yo, um, look, uh, we have left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? Uh, I don't believe that, Jesus. I don't believe this whole idea that this enterprise of salvation is impossible for men because look at what we have mustered up. Look at what we have willed on our own. We left everything that we had and we followed you unlike the rich young ruler. And by saying that, Peter demonstrated a wrong view of God, a wrong view of salvation, a wrong view of the kingdom of God, and a wrong view of himself. He was telling Jesus, listen, we did the very thing you required the rich young ruler to do. We left everything. Therefore, God is under a moral obligation to give us eternal life. And Jesus is saying, Jesus replies at the end of chapter 19, Peter, it is true. That those who end up leaving everything will in the end enjoy eternal life, but. Oh, and when those buts are in scriptures, you have to pay attention. All right? It's a contrastive conjunction. And he's about to reverse everything. The last will be first. The first will be last. You see, Peter, you're getting this all thing wrong. Your understanding of salvation is wrong. You see, you think that the one who leaves everything for my sake is the one who receives eternal life. Not knowing that the one who receives eternal life is the one who ends up leaving everything for my sake. You think that the work is what gets you in, not knowing that the work is a demonstration that you are already in. 
Don't you remember, Peter, that I'm the one who chose you? I'm the one who came for you. You were not looking for me. You were not considering me. You were not evaluating me. I came to you. Who were you? Just a fisherman? I came to you and I called you and you felt it. And you came to me because I came for you first, not the other way around. Four, welcome to chapter 20. I'm about to expand on this, Peter. And what, what Jesus is about to do here is to expose the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. He's about to reveal to us how the master of the house works. This is God's kingdom and we should play under his rules. And Peter, I'm about to dismantle your worldview because your thinking is wrong. You're thinking about God is wrong. You're thinking about salvation is wrong. You're thinking about the kingdom of God is wrong. And you're thinking about yourself is wrong. What do we do when the Bible corrects our view of God? There was a landowner, the story goes, who were early, early in the morning went to hire some workers to work at his vineyard. And those first workers, he agrees to pay them a denarius for the whole day, which was the custom um, practice based on Jewish law. And the third, at the third hour, he goes out again and he sees some workers and he tells them, come to my vineyard, I'll pay you what is right. He does the same thing at the sixth and at the ninth hour, but at the eleventh hour, at the last hour of the working day, this landowner decides to go to the marketplace. Isn't that strange? Do we really think that the landowners, the landowner needed more workers at the last hour of the working day? Do the math. By the time they would return, those workers would work for maybe 25, 30 minutes. The math doesn't add up. There is a different motivation behind his going. And Matthew tells us that when he gets to the marketplace, he finds them. And I love how Matthew uses language. You see, the first workers, he agrees. The second group of workers, he sees. But the last workers, he finds. Huh. And it is only to them that he asks this question. Why are you standing idle there? And their response is very telling. Don't miss this. They say, because no one has hired us. You know, the, these workers who, uh, who stood there all day and no one wanted them. The, these were the workers who were ignored by all other landowners. These were the scum that no landowner thought they could be of any value for their vineyard. And at the 11th hour, these workers have lost all hope. At last, landowner comes. And finds them and tells them, come to my vineyard. But there is another fascinating thing about this. To the first workers, the landowner agrees to pay them at denarius. The second group of workers, from the third to the ninth hour, the worker tells them that he will pay them what is right. But to the last workers, no compensation was offered.
these workers followed the landowner hoping that at the very least he would provide for their needs. It is the end of the day. The landowner tells his foreman, I want you to pay everybody a denarius. But this is how we're going to work this out. I want you to start with the last workers that I brought in. And then I want you to work your way down to the first ones. So the foreman pays everybody. And when he does that, this is where the story gets really interesting. Because the first workers complain. The first workers threw a fit when they saw the last Johnny-come-late losers receiving the same payment they received. And if you are honest with yourself, you would react the same way, right? We would all react the same way. How could it be that these last guys would get the same payment we received when we were the only ones working all day under the sun? You know what they were demanding? Fairness. They were demanding the very thing the rich young ruler implied and the very thing Peter demanded, what they thought they deserved. And the landowner is about to turn their worlds upside down. And through the landowner's response, very quickly, Jesus lifts the curtains of the kingdom of God to allow us to see how God works. The landowner is God. And God is about to teach us two things about his character with one purpose. To correct the way we relate to him. Do you want to relate to me? You have to do it on my terms, not yours. And the first thing that we see here is that fairness gives us what we deserve. Not what we need. God's justice. Fairness gives us what we deserve, not what we need, God's justice. Let's observe how the landowner responds. Verse 13 and 14a. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what is yours and go. And through this response, we see that the justice of God is always good. The justice of God is always right. Listen to how he begins. Friend, and sometimes I cringe at Bible translators because they soften the, the, the real meaning of certain words. Jesus is not saying philos. That's the word in the Greek for friend. He's using the word hetairos, which means an acquaintance. It is not a term of endearment. It is not a term of affection. It is a term of indifference. So much so. It is the same word that Jesus used to refer to Judas. When Judas came to him to betray him. In chapter 26 verse 50. Hetairos. Men do what you came to do. Indifference. And he tells these guys. I did no wrong to you. I did what was right. Are you accusing me of evil doing? You cannot accuse of you, can, you cannot accuse God of wrongdoing when He gives us what is right. 
We also notice that God's justice is always fair. He continues. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You see, when we, when we talked in the morning and we entered into that contractual agreement, you agreed for a denarius. That's what we agreed on. And why are you complaining? I'm giving you what you deserve. Are you presuming on my kindness? Uh, do you think that I owe you something other than what you deserve? Wasn't that Peter's mentality? Look at what we have done. You owe me something. Wasn't that the rich young ruler's mentality? I have kept all the commandments. You owe me something. Wasn't that the religious mentality? You see, I'm not like the adulterer. I'm not like the tax collector. You know, we, we tithe um, twice a week. We fast twice a week. We, we do all these things. God, you owe me something. But isn't that the mentality of most people, including some of us? The presumption of God's goodness as if God were in some sort of obligation toward us. As if God were in some sort of moral duty to give us other than what we deserve. But here is the more profound problematic question. What do we think we deserve? All of us have been indoctrinated to believe that we deserve better. That God owes us something better. And where does that come from? From a defective view of God that leads to a defective view of men. A view of God that has been thwarted by human ideas that sets men as the determiner of what is right and wrong. Setting men as the determiner of what is just and unjust. And Jesus is telling us, men, you are wrong. Through this interaction, Jesus highlights the justice of God, no? And this is what I need you to understand. God has set some standards that comport with who he is as a righteous and holy God. And he judges us based on our conformity to those standards. And because God is just, he must give us what we deserve. He will always pay what is right. What do we deserve? What do we really deserve? Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that all. That's the rich, the poor, the strong, the weak, the intellectual, the simple, the American, the Central American, the South American, the Caribbean, the European, the African. Everybody past, present, and future all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Therefore, what do we deserve? Romans 6.23, the payment, the wages for our sin is death. You want God to be fair? He'll give you his wrath. You want God to be fair? He'll give you his eternal condemnation. That is what is right. And if God were to do that to all of us, he would be perfectly just because God is under no obligation to save anyone. And do you understand that? God is under no obligation to save anyone. Why? Because no one is good. You're not good. I'm not good. And if you don't think that we are not good, it's because you don't have children. 
You see, those little creatures, they're beautiful, right? But, but who taught them how to rebel at one, at, at one year? Like, who, who taught them to steal little things when they're two? Who taught them how to lie when they're three? We're dead on arrival. We are not good. And if God give us eternal condemnation, he would be just in doing so. The reason why we have problems with that is because we don't understand the holiness of God. God is so holy that one little sinful thought deserves the eternal condemnation of a righteous and holy God. Do you understand that? Do you want fairness? Do you really want God to be fair? The first workers got exactly what they deserved, a payment. But Jesus doesn't leave it there because what he's about to say is one of the most infuriating things the modern man can hear. And through it, he will teach us that unfairness grants us what we need, not what we deserve. His grace. Unfairness grants us what we need, not what we deserve. Observe the landowner's logic. Listen, verse 14. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Don't I have the right? To do what I choose with what belongs to me. Or do you begrudge my generosity? And the first thing we notice here is that God's grace is sovereign. Listen, I choose to give this worker. I choose to give this worker. This is God's absolute predilection. God bestows his grace in whom he wants to bestow his grace. Do you really think that the landowner needed to get more workers at the last hour? Of course not. What was he trying to prove? What was he trying to show? His grace. His generosity. Not with the ones who worked for it, but with the ones who did not earn it. The ones who did not deserve it. To them, he chose to give them what they needed. And this was his decision, and this was his prerogative. And the second thing we notice in this passage is that his prerogative to distribute his grace is his right. His prerogative is his right. Jesus is telling us that, that God has the absolute right to do whatever he wants with what belongs to him. 
You see, we live in a nation that is all about personal rights and, and personal autonomy. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me to wear that. You can't, can't tell me to get that. Uh, this is my God-given right. No. Your only God-given right is the right to live, and he can take it away whenever he so well chooses. He is the only one who has absolute right. Everything we have here are government-constructed rights, and the problem that we have committed, the sin that we have committed, is that we have extrapolated that mentality into Christianity. And then we go to God and say, everyone has the right to be saved. You know, like, I have the right to get a second chance. I have the right to complain. I have the right to, to disagree with you, God, when I don't like what you say, and God is saying, no, you don't. You see, Arsis Pro used to say, we salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of men. And that is our problem. That is our problem. If God has absolute rights, we do not have absolute rights. If we were to philosophize this, that would contradict the law of non-contradiction for those who love philosophy. If he has absolute rights, we don't have absolute rights. It is his absolute sovereignty, my brothers, that informs us that he has the absolute right to do whatever he wants to do with what belongs to him. He wanted the first workers to understand that. He wanted Peter to understand that. And he wants us to get that straight. Well, don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? In the final analysis, brothers and sisters, God is entirely concerned about his rights, not ours. That's what he cares about, his rights. Everything else we get are privileges of his grace. Why doesn't he save everybody? Well, the better question is, why is he saving anyone at all? And if your knee-jerk reaction is, oh, that's not fair. Brother and sister, with all the love that I can muster up, you don't know God. Doesn't he know our filthiness? Doesn't he know our vileness? Doesn't he know our sinfulness? Doesn't he know our rebellion, our wretchedness? Doesn't he know that? The better question is, why are we even alive? Why did he allow us to wake up this morning? Why did he allow us to come here? We don't deserve none of this. Don't I have the right to do what I want? Oh, why does he do things that way? Why does he choose to do things the other way? You see, we have believed that he owes us an explanation. And the only thing he owes us is his wrath. Don't I have the right to do what I want? 
Exodus 33:19 says, I will be gracious to whom I want to be gracious. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Paul picks up this text, inserts in Romans chapter 9, and he says, Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy. To whom I want to have mercy, I will show compassion. To whom I want to show compassion. So it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul tells them, man, who are you, O men, to answer back to God? Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay? Don't I have the right to do what I choose with what I have? And the last thing we see is that God's grace is unfair. He asked this question, do you begrudge my generosity? Is your eye envious? Are you jealous because I am giving people that do not deserve it what they need? And the landowner is telling the first workers, you are right. It's not fair. And that's the point. That's the point. That is the point. Hey, Peter, I, I choose to be generous with those who do not deserve it the same way I chose to be generous with you. And with you, Christian, who is here this morning. I am the God of the last. I am the God of the misfits. I am the God of the ignored. I am the God of the rejected. To those I choose to bestow my grace. And you have no right to complain. Don't I have the right to do what I want? You see, the first workers got exactly what they deserved, a payment. The last workers got exactly what they needed, a gift. Who are you in this story? Are you like the first workers, like Peter, like the rich young ruler, who think that God owes you something? Jesus is telling you, in a loving but gracious and stern way, you're wrong. The only thing I owe you is what you deserve, my wrath. Or are you like the last workers, shocked, surprised by the scandalous grace of God? And Jesus is telling you this morning, isn't God a gracious, generous king? Listen, doesn't that make you want to leave everything for his sake? You see how this works? You leave everything for his sake out of a sense of gratitude because he came. For your rescue. And you know how he bestows that? You know how he bestows his grace? When the landlord went to the marketplace, he called them. 
And that's exactly what God does through the preaching of the word of God. Through the preaching of the word of God, God calls, regenerates, and brings people to his vineyard. And that is why we preach. And that is why we evangelize. Because through the preaching of the word of God, God calls his people to his vineyard. James 1.18 says, out of his own will. Oh, man. He brought us forth through the word of truth. I close with this. When you get to heaven, the landowner is at the entrance of his kingdom. And he asks you, why should I let you in? The right response is not see. Look at what we have done. Look at everything that we have left. Look at everything that I have willed or mustered up. That's not the right response. The right response is this. You shouldn't. All I know is that I was standing idle, dead in my sins, at the 11th hour when I had lost all my hope. And you came to my rescue. And you called me to your vineyard. I have nothing to bring but Jesus' righteousness for me. This parable answers the ultimate question that Peter asks Jesus. Who then can be saved? And Jesus' response is, the recipients of God's grace. And his grace is the response of his love. Gerhard Voss once said, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. God is a gracious king. And if you are here this morning, it's because he has chosen to give you what you need, not what you deserve. Right now, we'll have the opportunity to respond and, uh, and partake of the Lord's Supper and respond in repentance and faith. You know who you are. You know if God is calling you either to repent of your sins and come to him or to repent for your presumption of his goodness. But also to give him thanks for what he has done for you. God is an unfair God. And for that we praise him. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this living, active word that you gave us this morning. 
we do not deserve this. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. You, we do not deserve your condescension toward us. But because of your great love, while we were dead in our sins, you made us alive. And you gave us what we needed. You gave us faith. You gave us repentance. And you brought us into your vineyard. Lord, I pray that the promise that you made in the book of Isaiah will ring true this morning. That every word that comes out of your mouth would not return to you empty or void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. I pray, Lord, that you'll do your work this morning in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.